0: Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth And forevermore. Awesome. You may be seated. Trying something new this morning as we spend a few weeks working our way through some Psalms. Uh, Would you just pray with me as we kick this off? Jesus, Lord, we just give this time to you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would just be present in and through your word. God, that you would be the one to speak to the conditions of our hearts. Lord, I'm grateful that you know each and every person in this room down to the amount of hairs or the lack thereof on their heads, and Jesus, I pray this morning that you'd bless them. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that this time would be a time where we would draw near to you and really learn what it means to quiet our souls and find rest in you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Awesome. So we're going to be in Psalm 131 this morning, as was just read. For the next few Sundays, I thought instead of... Jumping back in the book of Matthew, for those of you that are new here in the last few weeks, I'm Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, usually, I'm doing the teaching, but for the last month, we've had this Voices series, and have had different people in our church sharing for the last four weeks, and uh, given me a little break on Sundays, which has been really nice. But we've been in the study through the book of Matthew for like a year and a half. And I thought uh, a few weeks ago, as I was working on a Psalms project, actually with um, Dan Stolbarger has a, a regular um, mailer that he sends out with like a little Devo from a psalm. And I had an assignment uh, to read through or to read through a psalm and to write a little Devo on it once a week for a few months. And so as I was working on that a few weeks ago and reading through the psalms, I, I, I was just really challenged in my heart over um, a couple things that we're going to touch on this morning. And... I thought it might be kinda cool for the next few weeks for us to just stick in the Psalms of Ascent and cover a few of them over the next few weeks before we jump back in to the book of Matthew. So when I talk about the Psalms of Ascent, there's 15 of them in total, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are these Psalms of Ascent. And these Psalms were songs that were sung as the Israelites would literally make their pilgrimage from their places that they lived to Jerusalem, three times a year for these Jewish holy feasts. So you had Passover, you had Shavuot, and then you had Sukkot. So you had first fruits and first and a Feast of Tabernacles and Passover, so three times a year, families would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for these feasts. And if you studied geography, the geography of Israel at all, you'd see that Jerusalem sort of sits up above uh, in this in the, the sort of mountain range multiple times in scripture there's this reference to going up to jerusalem which jerusalem sits about 2500 feet above sea level so which doesn't sound super high considering the fact that we're at like 21 2200 here in coeur d'alene but for instance jericho which is 17 miles away from jerusalem sits 1200 feet below sea level and so you've got like a lot of elevation to gain to get your way to jerusalem and these families are walking to Jerusalem three times a year for these feasts. So it's also not just geography that would give the Jews, these Israelites, the, the reason to make reference to going up to Jerusalem. It's also the fact that Jerusalem is where the temple exists. It it's on the Temple Mount, and, and as Isaiah calls it, the mountain of the Lord's house. And the psalmist makes reference to ascending the hill of the Lord. And so the significance of these 15 psalms is that as the Jews were pilgrimaging. Uh, From their hometowns to Jerusalem, walking for days to and from these feasts, they would sing these songs of ascent. And so it's also said that these songs were sung by the priests as they would walk up the steps of the temple to go and minister. And so families not only sung these songs while they were journeying to and from Israel or to and from Jerusalem. But you probably, if you grew up in Jerusalem, you probably heard the priests singing these songs as they would walk up and down the temple steps to go minister. And so as I was reading through these psalms, I can't help but ask the question, what are the songs that we as a people of Jesus are singing today? Do we have those songs? What are we teaching? What are we instilling in our children And as anthem? What are the songs, and I say that figuratively, that that you will always hear and that you will always pick up and start singing yourself? Not just the music that we sing, but what is the songs of our life? What are the things that we are instilling in our church? And so I want you to think about this. As Jesus's people, there are a handful of things that identify us as Jesus's people. The first one is that we're disciples, that we're learners of Jesus. We follow Jesus. To be a Christian, that means that you've set yourself up in life to literally learn from Jesus. And so to be a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that we're just students in in a merely like intellectual sense of Jesus. It means that we learn from Jesus how to live. As we live in relationship with him, we are learning to be more and more like him. And so as we walk with Jesus in this life, he teaches us how to live. That's what it means to be his disciples. But we're not just disciples, and I want you to hear this this morning. Even, it's so sweet that we're praying for Jordan and Jenny this morning because we talk about church as family. We aren't just disciples, we're actually also pilgrims. And we're the pilgrim people of God and we're on the move. We're literally moving somewhere. God's people are always moving. We're not a static people. When when we came to Jesus, our life changed from being just focused on this world and our lives and, and this life and what we can get here on this earth, and instead of making ourselves a future here on this earth, we've literally set our sights somewhere else. We've set our sights on eternity. We've set our sights on our future home, our eternal home, and so we do not look at this life as static, we look at this life as dynamic, and we're actually on this journey together. We're on this, the, the, this pilgrimage together. It's why Jesus said that knowing him, walking with him, following him, is literally like walking on a road, is how Jesus refers to it. This narrow path, because we're actually on a journey together, following him. We're disciples. We're, we're, we're pilgrims. We're, we exist as a local church, anthem. In downtown Coeur d'Alene, where and when we do, such a time as this, in 2021, in the midst of a pandemic, because we're living just for these things. We want to know Jesus. It's why we're here. We want to know him. It's the cry of this church's heart to know and to follow him. We want to know him, and we want to make him known. Very simply, we want to be people that are following Jesus and people that are making Jesus known. That's it. That's why we remind ourselves every day and we remind each other to orient our lives and our, pers- on our perspectives toward him. We actually wanna impact our city together as people just simply living the life of God. Like it's that simple. Which is really simply a life described for us like in Galatians 5, right? A life marked by love, a life marked by joy, a life marked by peace. It's a a life described for us in this short passage in Psalm 131, this profound psalm. Like of the Psalms of Ascent, understand this. This is the first psalm in that series that doesn't include things like waves crashing around us, or mountains on all sides of us, or joy escaping us, or trials, or pain, or pressure. Like, I love this psalm because it's a simple description of the life that Jesus has for you and I, the life that he wants for us, and it's actually a life of power, amen? It really is. And so there's three stages and three verses in this psalm that I want to get to this morning the life, the way, and the call. Verse one, he says, oh Lord, he says, my heart is not lifted up, not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So as the people of God made the ascent into the city of God, think about it. Imagine it, they're singing this song. A song that was originally penned by a man named David. David was this shepherd boy, the sort of like warrior poet, this flawed king of Israel. But David was described also as a man after God's own heart, a man that God chose, a man who knew what it was to live in relationship with our creator. And so in Psalm 131, we're sort of given this glimpse into some of the essential characteristics of a life with God. And, what, and what's here is, is incredible. Like it's incredible to wrap our minds around because what we read in verse one is just so far, so, so far from the spirit of the world. It's so different than the world that we live in. He says, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't fill my mind with things that are beyond me. Hear that this morning. That is not the world that we live in. In other words, David wrote, and the people of God sang about like a power that they had experienced that had literally, like this power dissolved their pride and their arrogance and this sort of God-like self-perception that they had. And pride is what happens when we see ourselves as the answer to every problem in life. Arrogance is this sort of sense of superiority over everyone else around us. And this godlike self perception makes us very, very comfortable with actually applying this pride and this arrogance in every area of our life without even knowing that we're doing it. So, despite the fact that, that we're flawed and we're, we're these finite beings, it, it seems to come very easy for us to live with pride, to live with arrogance, to live with this sort of godlike self perception in our lives. And this actually destroys us. And I don't want you to miss this, the, the life that's described in Psalm 131 verse one is not natural, it does not make sense. To live this life means being filled with the kind of supernatural power that can only come by way of the Holy Spirit. This is nothing like what human beings bring to the table. This is a life beyond our ability. Again, it's supernatural. But if you have noticed the world around us that we live in right now, it's full of pride. It's full of arrogance. It's full of this godlike self perception. It's everywhere around us all of the time, and it's always been this way. You don't have to be a Christian to see that this is what our society is actually encouraging people in. Our culture believes that, that a basic requirement for a healthy human life is having a radically high view of ourselves. And we're constantly encouraged to do whatever comes naturally to us. And apparently it also keeps us as far as possible from a real life with God. And this is why to really feel what David wrote and to really feel what the people of God were singing, there's this man named David Polison who points out that we need to reverse this passage to actually hear what this psalm is actually saying. So he, he writes this sort of anti-Psalm, is what he calls it. See, he turns it into the opposite of what the people saying. and I want you to hear what he penned. He said this, the anti-Psalm of Psalm 131. you guys with me? You're good? All right. Jeez. Tough crowd this morning. He says this, My heart is proud. I'm absorbed with myself. My eyes are haughty. I look down on others and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. I'm noisy and restless inside, it comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and my worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all of the time. Does that not sound like the world that we live in? As Jesus' people, We're sort of caught up in this constant struggle between the psalm and then this anti-psalm because we live in a world that encourages us towards pride and towards arrogance and towards this godlike self-perception. It's this world that's full of noise. If you haven't picked up on that, um, I'm gonna flip the switch on for you this morning. This world's chaotic. It's out of control, levels of anxiety, suicide rates that have never been higher Relational connection that's never been lower. Like our pride, church, has literally cut us to the core. Like our pride doesn't just cut us off from relationship with God. Get this, it actually cuts us off from ourselves and from one another. This week was like one of the hardest weeks of my whole year. Where I find myself like doing a funeral for a man who took his own life A woman in our church passed away as a result of COVID, doing a wedding rehearsal on Friday night and a wedding yesterday, and finding myself caught in this crazy tension of like, this is the world we live in. There's brokenness and hurt and pain all around us. There's things that we rejoice in. There's this tension that we live in. But one commentator points out that pride means I have to establish my superiority over you in some way. And when I can't establish my superiority over you, instead I'm filled with envy, jealousy, hatred, anger, bitterness, criticism. And if that's not bad enough, I mean, if there's a relational breakdown between God and us because of our pride and between each other because of our pride, and if that wasn't bad enough, here's the craziest thing about pride, he says. It also has a tendency to turn on its owner. And this sense of superiority that we have over others often makes us Self-critical to the core. And this infection of pride and arrogance means not only do other people very rarely live up to your expectations or my expectations, but we never live up to our own expectations. So as as much as we tear other people to shreds internally, in ways it just leaks out of us. And and we tear ourselves down even more. And this is why hate and self-hate often go hand in hand. It's why we make it so easy for this deadly sickness to actually hide. We we make it so easy for pride and arrogance and this God-life self-perception to hide because pride hides behind what? It hides behind perfectionism. Pride sort of crouches down in, in, in the grass of our high expectations and our high standards. Pride keeps us filled with noise, so much noise, that we're actually chronically unable to rest in our culture today. It seems like nobody can rest today because pride and arrogance keep us chasing the things that are already destroying us, but we keep chasing them anyways. We keep turning to the same things for rest that didn't provide rest the last time because there's just so much noise that we cannot stay quiet. We're full of noise, we're full of anxiety and turmoil and disappointment and frustration and criticism and grumbling. We can't stop. And what I've noticed in my own life is that pride has this amazing ability to hide behind perfectionism and high standards. And I'm just going to be super real for a second with you guys this morning in my own battles Like it's, this is one of the reasons that spiritual pride is such a massive stronghold in Jesus's church. It's a stronghold in this church. Like we all deal with it. I went away a couple weeks ago for two days by myself and I was like, just kind of like maxed out. I'm like, I just, I need to get away. I need my phone off. I need to just like be with Jesus because that doesn't come easily for me to be quiet and to just sit and to just listen. And so I literally went and camped in the back of my truck for two days. Took off. And I was trying to practice like sitting with the Lord without any distractions. And if you're anything like me, like sitting does not come easy. Anybody in here like that? Like it's just so hard. It's so hard. By myself doesn't come easy to me. In the quiet doesn't come easy to me. None of these things are easy, but I went away literally just trying to seek answers from the Lord. You know, we retreat oftentimes so that we can just get the download from God, right? I'm gonna go away two days. Jesus, give me the download so I can immerse myself back in the chaos that I came from, but with this holy revelation and ready for it. You know what I mean? And so I go away and I just want this download from the Lord. And the quick download didn't come. And instead, it was sort of this, revelation this flashlight revelation on my own heart where Jesus is like scanning my heart and some of what I wrestled with were these things in my own life like I've never been called an arrogant or prideful person I'm not I'm not saying that I've never struggled with that but that's not something that I've been called before but it doesn't mean that because people can't see it it's not there somewhere Because I battle with people pleasing, I I, I battle with perfectionism, I battle with the desire to accomplish, I always have. And anybody who knows me knows that there's one thing I do well, humility, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, my problem that I've battled isn't getting a big head or getting a massive ego But it's this constant battle as far back as I can remember of feeling as though I wasn't good enough. That I can't live up to the standards that I've set for myself. And as I prayed about these things and I take them to the Lord, I've been really convicted of these things. Like this desire to accomplish and do everything perfectly is really driven by a spiritual pride. It's driven by a spiritual arrogance, by this this sort of self, this, this ambition, like make something, do something of myself. Because what I thought was just a really strong sense of calling in my life, at times has become a set of expectations for what I hoped to become and what I hoped my life would look like. And then when I don't live up to those standards, that spiritual pride and that superiority that's been sort of crouching in my life for decades culminates, and it pounces on me. And in seasons of my life, it's literally filled me with grief. At times, it's filled me with a sense of loss of, like, self-identity and direction. And it gets scary sometimes. I'm just being very real with you guys on just some of the battles I go through in my own life. But as I wrestled with Jesus and I'm trying to figure out, Lord, where is this rooted? I realized that there's been a few mentor-type pastors in my life going back 20-some years. Early on in ministry, people that I really wanted to believe in me. And one of them was a pastor that I asked to help me get the skateboard ministry started. And he just kind of thought it was a joke and didn't want to help and sort of brushed it off. And the other was this pastor that I worked for that uh, upon telling him that I wanted to actually quit my job at the church to focus our time and attention on the skateboard ministry. Um, he sort of informed me that my job at the church would still be there when and if the skateboard stuff didn't work out. And I had another pa- mentor, pastor, like professor tell me not to plant a church in Coeur d'Alene because I was a big city boy that needed to be in the city. (laughs) And there's more than just these instances. And I'm not telling you this to throw these really well-meaning men under the bus. Like, that is not my intention at all. But I want to tell you that the way I received their lack of support in my life was very much in a, I'll show you, you can't keep the Lord from doing what he wants to do mentality. That's how it spiraled out for me. And at seasons of my life, this has really messed with me because my, my motivation has been in proving them wrong. Like I will show you, like we're gonna do this thing and it's wrapped up in spiritual pride and it's a spiritual sort of arrogance. Again, it's this godlike self-perception. And it's so easy for us to fall into these traps, to get lost in the constant noise around us. And remember, elevated hearts, eyes raised too high, occupying ourselves with what's beyond us because we think too highly of ourselves. This is what the psalmist talks about. These are sort of these hidden noise machines in our lives that make it impossible to rest, impossible to find peace, impossible to stop working, impossible to let go of our perfectionism and our high standards and our high expectations. These noise machines make it impossible to just go be with Jesus and sit with him. Like, that's enough. So what about you? I've exposed myself enough this morning. <laughs> Which psalm describes your life the best? The psalm or the anti-psalm? Which psalm's a better picture of your life? Because the psalm is a description of another kind of life. Like it doesn't make sense. When I read Psalm 131, I'm like, how in the world does this guy say that his eyes don't look too high, that he's not haughty, like how in the world does this happen? But Psalm 131 is this picture of a people that are at peace and it's not just hope for the world out there that something can be done about the pride that exists out in the world and it's just out there, it's actually hope for us that are in this room this morning. that that something can be done about the spiritual prize that still enslaves individuals in Jesus' church, that something can actually be done to heal the wounds that have been created as we've divided ourselves because of the religious spirit. And these are the words of people like finally primed for joy. Like, it sounds so freeing to read the psalm. These are the words of people who have literally let, let go of everything that used to make their lives so loud. And it's a song of people celebrating that they've been set free from the chains of pride, that they've been set free from the chains of arrogance and this godlike self-perception. And the question is, how in the world do you and I get there? Anybody want that this morning? Like, how do we get there? How do we experience the same thing? Where Where have the psalmist and these singing, the journeying people of God found the power that they're singing about? And so listen to what the people sing as we move into verse two. David wrote, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So the first thing to notice here about the way to experience the life that's described in verse one is that this life actually requires yours and my participation. And it's really important, like the, the freedom and victory and spiritual formation and transformation into Jesus's image, healing from sickness, uh, of the sickness of pride and arrogance, these things are all available to us but they're only to those who lean in. Like if you don't lean in, you don't experience the healing. Like anybody ever ridden a hoverboard before? what do you got to do to get the hoverboard to move? Lean in a little bit, right? What happens if you just stand on the hoverboard? Does it go anywhere? Does anything happen? Who's the actual thing that's providing the movement? It's the hoverboard, but you lean into it a little bit. There's participation in your behalf to lean in, to experience this. And if you don't participate with Jesus in your own formation, like if you aren't being transformed, renewed, like by Jesus, you won't experience the fullness of what's being offered to you in this life. So there's this really weird idea that exists in the church today that all Jesus really ever expected from us as people is just agreement. That's all he expects. Like we just agree that he's Lord. We just agree that we're sinners. We just agree that he's alive. We agree that we need him. And then everything is good in our lives. You just agree with him, everything's fine. But it's sort of like we have put the whole Christian life right here into our brains and it doesn't work itself out into our bodies at all intellectually we've got it all trapped up here but it doesn't pan out in our lives it's not moving us to action and passivity will not get us where we need to go so the psalmist and and these people that are singing to god these psalms they did something to experience the noise of their pride and their arrogance to literally watch it fall away but what did they do they sang i've calmed and i've quieted my soul I've calmed and I've quieted my soul. They might as well have said something like, I've climbed Mount Everest barefoot, right? (laughs) Because how easy is it to calm and quiet your soul? It's so hard. It's virtually impossible. But in other words, like I've calmed and quieted my soul is not something that you and I can do. We can't do it. And you can take all the drugs you want, you can take all the psychedelics you can imagine, you can do as many meditative breathing exercises as you want, as many brain exercises that you feel you wanna give yourself, But our souls have a way of remaining restless and demanding that it's never enough. Like it's never enough, I just need more. And so no matter what we do, we can't seem to keep these souls of ours calm. We just can't seem to keep them quiet or at rest or at peace permanently. And so where does it leave us? Like if we're called to participate and the thing that we're called to participate in is actually way beyond us and we can't do it ourselves, where does that leave you and I? Needy and helpless. Needy and helpless. Both of which are essential to any healing that you're ever gonna experience from the hand of God. To be needy and helpless is exactly where we need to be. So back to verse two. Imagine the people singing this. I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. You see, helplessness actually is the point. Neediness actually is the key. There's no healing without them. And verse two is this amazing picture of both, that we can all picture what's here, but nobody better than moms who have actually nursed small children understand what's being said in this passage. When a hungry baby is placed in the lap of their mother, they get frustrated and they get restless and they squirm all because they're like full of this desire that they can't satisfy themselves, right? I go away for two days and spend time by myself to draw near to the Lord, and what do I do? (laughs) Come on, Jesus, speak to me, you know, like give me me a word or something, like, you know, I want, send some lightning down, like I need something from you, Lord, and what I'm challenged by is the fact that most of the time he's like, no, hang with me. Like, am I enough? And you can ask my wife, my whole drive back from camping, I'm just like, I didn't get anything. All I felt like the Lord was saying was like, why can't you just hang with me? Why can't you just be with me? Why do you always need something from me or to do something for me? Why can't you just be with me? And so think about the things that destroy adults, like anxiety, depression, anger, jealousy, discontent, confusion, And think about a baby waiting to nurse, literally scrambling to figure out how it's gonna be fed. But then I want you to imagine that same exact child after a really good meal. What's the baby look like? (laughs) It's just, (laughs) it needs nothing else. and picture like the quieting that comes over that small baby and then think about that same baby when they're, fi- when they're finally successfully weaned, right? Like she, she's, the baby's placed in her mom's lap and all her focus goes right away to the right place, right? The baby is as needy as they've ever been, they're as hungry as they've ever been, but there's zero panic in the child. The baby is totally helpless, but there's no frustration, why? Because the baby learned to trust that in the presence of their mom, they'll be completely and totally satisfied. Totally. And the baby actually believes it. That's the cool part. It's not just a hope, it actually believes that the mom will take care of it. And it's like the baby has learned for a brief moment, as we're challenged in Scripture, to live by faith before peace even comes, right? But before the healing comes, before you're even fully satisfied, that they know that they're in the presence of mom and that they're secure. And so the minute the baby goes into the mom's lap, they learn to calm and quiet themselves. And God is literally wanting to comfort you today in that way. He is. But you've got to lean in. You've got to lean in. And this is the way to quiet a life, Anthem. To see God as he is. The the way to healing from all of the noise of our pride and our arrogance is to actually start by being empty, to leave everything behind. It starts with being needy. It starts with being helpless. And I don't know about you, but I look around at our society sometimes, and I think like it doesn't sometimes seem like there's a lot of people in need. I know that's out there, but we do a really good job hiding that need. It seems as though we've got things figured out, and if we don't have it figured out, we can go make the money, find the career, get the thing, do whatever we need to to figure it out so that we can make it happen on our own, and none of it took any sort of dependence or surrender to the Lord Himself. And this is what I'm practicing and learning at 42, almost 43 years old how to sit with Jesus. Like, I'll be the first to admit that I don't always understand it. How to quiet my soul, how to surrender everything to him, how to lean in, like, by practically making time and room for him and then receiving from him as he does the quieting for me. And so some of you need to be convinced of your helplessness. And unfortunately, that's a painful process for anybody that's gone through that before. We don't stop thrashing around, like in our neediness, like, like a baby, until we run out of strength. But Jesus wants to quiet your soul like he's quieting mine, I think, right now. And this is what happens when we first come to Jesus, right? We, we hear Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus says what? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you what? Rest. We come to Jesus and we're like, amen, rest. You know, life's chaotic. Jesus is actually gonna be that rest for me. Well, 2,000 years ago, the world was just as loud, just as anxious and fearful and striving as the world is today. And so Jesus shows up and he offers rest. Jesus offers a quiet. He said, knowing tiredness, knowing weight, knowing that weariness is a prerequisite for knowing him. So if you're weary and you're tired today, you're in a really amazing place in life. You're sort of being primed for the rest that Jesus wants to offer you for healing. Jesus lived and died and rose to make rescue reality for anybody who wants it. But that first rest that we experience when we first respond to him and come to him, it's sort of like being born. It's like being born again. For those of you that have Been saved. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. You become spiritual babies. We're spiritual infants. And now is when we wind up in the arms of our loving mom, a mother who's passionate, ready, willing to give us everything that we could ever need. But as hard as she tries, she can't force us to calm and quiet our souls. She can't force us to trust her. God isn't in the business of forcing you to trust him, he's not in the business of forcing your soul to be calmed. Some of you just need the peace from life for a brief moment and stop for a second and draw near to him without the distractions of your life. What I'm realizing is that a lot of Christians are like infants in the laps of a mom who's never been weaned, right? We're always agitated, we're fussing, we're frustrated. And it shows because the whole world sees it. Like these Christians who claim to have come to God, who, this God who promised them rest, who are anything but quiet and anything but peaceful, and the church sort of ends up looking just like the world when we claim to have experienced rest without actually resting. It's challenging. Like I'll be the first hypocrite to step on the stand. I mean, we we literally look at every other marketing campaign for every other product that doesn't actually work. And then we draw from that in our own lives. And so that's why we start to dress ourselves up in other things, right? It's why we make the church about strategy. It's why America has made the church about celebrity and about intellect. It's why we sort of co-op the ways of the world and we start to measure ourselves by the exact same metrics as the entertainment industry. We just want somebody to say that you're doing the right thing. To tell us that, we're, that, we're work, that this is working and we just want some way to see some kind of power at work among us. And so we look to where the world tells us to look. We literally look to the noise to try to find rest. And what we're missing is the actual life of God, the actual power of his Holy Spirit in our lives and in the church because most of us are simply refusing to rest in him. We're too busy, we're thrashing around, looking everywhere else for help and it's time for us as Jesus people to stop imagining that all Jesus offered was an initial experience to you of rest when you first came to him. Because it's ongoing. And I'll close with this. Verse 3, the people close the song out by singing this. They say, Oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So remember the anti-Psalm said, I cast my hopes onto anything and everything around me. It's a picture of chasing, looking, striving, desperately trying to find anything, something, someone to satisfy us and give us rest. But the people of God, church, aren't like that. The disciples of Jesus aren't like that. The pilgrim people of the King of Kings are already oriented in one direction. And what I really want us to see in this last verse is that we're being called to this life as a people together, as a family on the move, this pilgrimage with one another Israel was once the name of the small, sort of insignificant family that was roaming around the desert, right? And it's still the name of a people and a place. But biblically, that name, we're grafted into There's hope in that for you and I. In Galatians 6, Paul actually calls the church the Israel of God. Like we're a people brought together out of every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. None of us are being called into this life alone, but we're actually being called to dovetail together in this life. And we cannot live as a disciple and as pilgrims without one another. We're literally being called together. It's why we exist as a local church. Life with Jesus is not just about new individual pursuits for you, but there's a togetherness in this for you and I. And I want to pray for us this morning because I have no idea where you're at, but I'm going to tell you, like the last two, three weeks of my life, I have just felt like everything's been rushing around, so busy, and the noise is nonstop. And then you have hard weeks to sort of pile on top of the already the noise and the chaos that's already going on and it leaves you sitting in a place where you're just like, I want the rest and the peace that God has offered me. I don't know how to get it and I feel consumed by everything around me. My challenge to you this morning is that that peace was not something that was offered to you once but it's an ongoing thing you get to partake in. Are you ready to lean into it this morning? Are you ready to lean into it this morning? Not a rhetorical question. Are you ready to lean into it this morning? Are you literally ready for the power of God to move through his church, to bring us to him, to unite us together as one, and to lead us in this pilgrimage home? It's not for naught, we're heading somewhere. There's a destiny, there's a future, there's a hope. You aren't alone, you're literally in this boat with 300 other people that are sitting in this room this morning, you're not solo. Would you stand with me? Let me pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you, God, um, just for the challenge in this psalm. I thank you, Jesus, for the challenge that it's actually good for us to be in a place where we're needy and helpless, where we can't take care of ourselves, but where we crawl up into your lap and we ask, Jesus, that you be the one. To sustain us and so for some in this room that just means starting to make more intentional time in their life to sort of get out of the chaos and just sit with you for some in this room that means opening up your bibles and just literally washing yourselves in the word and drawing near to jesus and allowing him by his spirit to literally just soak your soul Jesus, I pray against the onslaught of the enemy. I know he wants nothing less than to just heap arrogance and pride and even the thought that we don't struggle with those things and continue to heap this agitation and frustration and all these things upon us that we would be consumed by the noise, but I pray right now, Jesus, that a rest would fall upon your church, You'd give us a glimpse of your spirit, by your spirit, the rest that only you can provide for our souls, the calm that you can only provide for us. I thank you for these people, God. And I'm just praying as they leave this morning that they would find themselves fully, fully surrendered to you, Jesus, knowing that you'll take care of them. In Jesus' name.